What's Buzzing Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Degden, and along with me, Michael Fraley and Will Mortensen. Yesterday, we told you uh, we'd have a special guest on today, and uh, we're coming through on that, progr- on that uh, promise. Today, we have uh, in the bubble zone, Zach Slavitt with us today. Um, he's a good friend of ours. Um, you know, we've, I think you can, you know, Zach, why don't you just, why don't you talk about yourself for a little bit? Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and thank you for having me on. I've been a fan of the first few episodes. Um, yeah, so my name's Zach, and I, of course, want to Blake with the host of the podcast. And I'll be going to University of Pennsylvania next year, um, studying business. And a few hobbies of mine are watching and playing basketball, listening to music, and watching movies. Um, I also like data and stats, and as they like relate to sports, politics, business, current events. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the main reason why we had Zach on first as our first uh, special guest is because for our senior program, we're actually working together because um, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but Zach is the co-host of In the Bubble, which was actually I think it got the top five on Apple uh, Podcasts at one point. Correct me if I'm wrong, Zach, but it was I think maybe on the news podcast. Oh, still though, I mean, like there there was a crazy jump in popularity, and Zach, at you know, 18 years old, just one of us, is co-hosting it with his dad, and I think that's um really cool. And uh, you know, we kind of want to know, and our listeners kind of want to know, like, what's your role on in the bubble, and can you tell us a little bit about you know what you do and such and such. Yeah, so I have a few different roles on in the bubble. Um, the first one being the technology aspect of recording, uploading, and getting connected to the guests. Um, and the second one is more as a participant, like you said, uh, helping co-host a little bit. And my participation uh, vocally, it really depends on the episode, uh, who the guest is, like how it fits in. Um, yeah, and so the main thing that I've really learned from this, as you guys have probably noticed from your podcast, is really how many, how much work goes into putting out a podcast or any form of media. Um, just because there's so many people working on ours, and they're all essential to the whole process, whether it's booking guests, uh, creative ideas, marketing, editing the audio and just everything else you actually you have um you, you told me that you have some editors on the 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 podcast like how many people do you have working on the team in total for uh the podcast yeah do you know? uh, so the podcast is with lemonada media which is a podcasting company and so so they have like a staff of probably like i guess 10 to 15 people who work on six different podcasts and so those people, a lot of them, maybe like five or six are working on this one. So we have an editor, we have uh, schedulers, we have uh, just overall people who help run the podcast, people who market it. Um, so I guess probably five to six in addition to my dad and I. Wow. That's really, I didn't, God. I mean, that's, I thought, you know, 
I only having three people. I mean, I wish I had six or seven people working on my podcast. Yeah, we're 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 grinding it out in the trenches over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, I have a quick question. So I know you guys have had some pretty, um, pretty more famous guests on. What's that been like for you to meet those people? Yeah. Uh, what's well, been really cool meeting a lot of these people. Uh, you know, even the most, even like the not so famous people, such as one we had a couple weeks ago, Ron Klain who was under Obama, who's in the administration. Um, like, he's not that famous, but he's, like, the top person to talk about in terms of, like, organizing a pandemic in the government because he was the Ebola czar for Obama. Um, so it's really cool hearing from those type of people. But also, it's cool hearing from some of the more famous people, like Tina Fey, Nate Silver, Beto O'Rourke, uh, Chelsea Clinton, Mark Cuban, Kumail Nanjiani, are, those are some of the most famous people that we've had so far. Jeez. Jeez. It's a pretty sweet cast, yeah. So I guess, like, when it comes to content and the stuff, like, people have been talking about, what kind of um, pandemic-related stuff have you guys covered on that podcast? Like, have you have you covered, like – how colleges are going to deal with this next fall or how sports leagues are going to deal with it? Or what have you guys been talking about primarily? We've primarily been talking about what people can do at home. Um, especially people who have maybe lost their jobs or, or hmm. are having a lot of like stress from just the whole having to stay home fear of the virus. We've also talked about what our next steps are um, in terms of reopening where everything's headed, where we, what have we done wrong? Like, how can we learn from it? Not just like trying to point out people's flaws, but like, what can we learn from what we've done wrong? And just stuff like that. Um, really just trying to bring what each guest's expertise is specifically into that conversation. Okay. So you said you had Cuban on, right? So um, do you, if you remember, like what was his opinion about, because our podcast is geared towards, you know, sports and movies and entertainment and such and such and so like my main question going into this was like how do you see covid affecting or like what what do you think like the reopening process for some of these sports leagues like the nba like i just saw i got a notification on my phone that said like the nba is thinking about coming back in mid-july and i was wondering like what does what did cuban think about that on the show and about like you know the nba reopening again yeah so Cuban was one of our, was actually our first guest. So that was like that was a while ago. Mainly talking more about the fact that the NBA had been shut down than reopening the NBA. But I can talk to you a little bit about some of the, just like a little bit about some of the conversations my dad has had with some of the NBA organizations and people um, that might signal stuff about sports. Um, but I can't can't say everything. But mm. basically, I think sports will be reopening in the near future, at least the NBA and the NFL. Um, and I think I, well, I actually know that they're really focusing on teaming up with doctors and scientists to figure out what the safest way to resume competition is, both for the fans and the players. And I think there's going to be a very strict testing protocol for games that's actually going to allow fans mm -hmm. into games uh, mm -hmm. instead of what some people might think, which would be an empty stadium because there are these new very fast like 15 minute tests 
using saliva that leagues are trying to organize. Um, so I think I think certain leagues can resume relatively quickly. There's just a lot of logistical issues they're going to have to figure out in terms of testing everybody, some of the risks they might have, and it's there's definitely a risk associated with reopening sports. Do you think um, do you, would those games be at max capacity, or was that the plan for fans, or would there be like you know a cutoff of like maybe fifty percent capacity for fans, or is it is the plan for max capacity? I think all that's still up in the air. I think if they can get good testing capabilities and have all that sorted out, they can get closer to max capacity. Um, but th- there's also the question of if fans are even going to want to take that chance, mm-hmm. that even if it's a small chance, none of these tests are exactly perfect. So there's still going to be a percentage of people in every game who could potentially be infected. And so it's really going to be, a question both in terms of fans and in terms of the league, whether or not they feel comfortable having that kind of risk of the fans all sitting very closely to each other, some of them on the court potentially, um, potentially infecting players. So I don't think they necessarily know at this moment. Yeah, that's interesting to hear because, I mean, obviously I think from like the public standpoint, we're kind of all assuming that sports will come back, but there won't be fans for a long time. So that's interesting to hear. And I think that shows obviously how integral fan fans are to the sport, to to the professional sports. Obviously the game isn't the same without a full arena. So that's interesting to hear um, for sure. Yeah. And for some leagues such as the MLB, actually having no fans in the stadiums would make it not worth it for them to have games because they make some, a large percentage of their money from actual in-stadium fans. Okay. Whereas some other leagues maybe could potentially survive without in-stadium fans. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's that's yeah. Again, that's very interesting information. Well, I I'm just kind of curious because like I know I I think um I don't know if it was the Premier League or one of the European soccer leagues. Uh, I saw that they like resumed play and already like six people have tested positive again. So, like, I guess I'm just kind of curious what you think, like, it would take for the league to, like, reopen and then, like, you know, how are they going to go about if one player gets it? You know, like, will they just quarantine them and the whole – because you can't really, like, in the NFL season say, like, one player and, like, the Buccaneers gets it. But then you have to, like, quarantine the whole team for, like, two weeks, right? Yeah. And that's not really going to work in the NFL because it's a weekly schedule. So, like, how do you think they'd really go about that? Yeah, I think that's really going to be about making sure the players are isolating other than the games and practices. Because really there's – even if you're testing them daily, like one player getting sick, even if, you te- like te- even if you test him and you catch it the first day, he's still going to be out for maybe up to a month. And you still – you don't know maybe necessarily if he was interacting with other players or what happened. Um, in terms of having to – quarantine the whole team I don't think that would have to happen if they can get the testing capacity high enough in order to test all the other players they can just see who has it who doesn't Hmm. Uh, that that was really a big problem at first with the NBA because there just weren't very many tests when that first outbreak occurred with Gobert Um, but I think now it would be a it would be a big deal if someone got it 
because it'd be out of play for so long, but it wouldn't necessarily be a big problem in having to isolate everyone. I guess that's, I mean, because like I, I don't doubt that by say like come the NFL season, the testing will be wide, will be like widely more available, be easier to do. But at the same time, I'm just kind of skeptical because of like how, you know, one person getting it could affect the team for like two whole weeks. Um, you know, I, I think they definitely still, I think the no, the no fans plan, I think works well, but just as far as like testing, that's where I'm a little more skeptical. It's definitely going to be a big risk for the teams, not just in terms of the safety of their players, but also like if one of the team's star players gets sick, they might miss the whole rest of the NBA playoffs and that could just ruin the team's chances. So I think they're going to really be protective of the players, really trying to keep them in their contact with other people as minimal as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think uh, also – the point you bring up about the MLB where they're making – that's just not worth it to play without fans because they're bringing in so much money just from fans. Um, I think that's that conversation spreads into college sports as well from what I've heard. Um, I know a lot of universities are already cutting their budget for athletics or having to cut off sports teams um, because they're just not going to be able to handle everything or they're not going to be able to have enough money to support all the teams they usually do. So have you heard anything about college sports and how um, universities and their athletic departments are gonna be affected or? Well, I, I personally think that college sports, at least in the fall and probably winter, are not gonna be really possible just because of the differences in which schools are gonna be open, which schools aren't, what capacity are gonna be open. I think a lot of schools, aren't going to be allowing their sports to happen in the fall and winter just because there's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of risk with people traveling across the country, all these players interacting with the other students, just bringing in infections from maybe, maybe a school didn't have an infection, but then another team came in and they had some sick fans or players. It's just, it just seems like too much risk for the college colleges to have. Right. Huh. I was thinking about this because I was talking to, you know, a friend of mine who's going to play college soccer locally. And he was saying that there's uh, like a high likelihood that, or there's a chance like they might be able to play like a regular season, right. Um, within like the local area, but it, for like the NCAA tournament at the end of the, the year, there's like no chance because of, you know, how quickly this can spread. And like you said, Zach, even if a school is re- like relatively clean with local cases, of COVID, they could, you know, play another team with someone who is asymptomatic and then the rest of the team gets infected. And then, so there's just too much risk, like you said, Zach, about um, playing. So I think, I think there might be a chance where, you know, some of these like local colleges may be able to put on some games. Um, Mm. But I don't, I don't see this happening at like a national level at all. Well, didn't didn't the um didn't the NCAA president already say like if schools aren't in session, they're not gonna have sports? Like they can't have sports. I mean, that would make sense, right? If no one's yeah. allowed on campus, they can't have sports. So, yeah, I guess it also does depend on which schools decide to go online for the fall, or which schools are actually kind of letting kids come to campus. I mean, I think this is a perfect time to transition into colleges because. 
yesterday, Mort and I received some good news that uh, BC is planning on going back August 31 um, in person. But um, and then there's also I think some schools in South Carolina and Notre Dame followed suit where um, the plan is to go back August 10th, right, and then be on campus for the first couple months, and then after Thanksgiving breaks to go back to online school in anticipation for that second wave. Zach, can you talk to us a little bit about um, the second wave and how you see that impacting colleges? Yeah, uh, I kind of see the second wave as kind of a not necessarily something that people should really look at because we haven't really seen too much evidence that the summer months are going to be like less severe in terms of the spread than the spring or the fall. So I think really the second wave is going to be more behavioral based on when people start interacting more than it is going to be based on the season of the year. Because as we've seen, as social distancing measures have been take, lifted in certain states, a lot of those states have actually increased in cases, um, which kind of tells us that it's not necessarily the weather that's causing this, but it's more behavior of people. And this kind of makes me, it makes me curious of what's going to happen with these colleges, if there's going to be outbreaks. And I think they definitely need to have a plan in place to within less than a week, switch over from in-person to online school. If there's a big outbreak on campus. Hmm. Yeah, I know, I guess with that, within that second wave conversation, I'm sure like you've heard things about kind of people looking at um, other countries such as China and Italy that might be a little further along in the pandemic or their handling of the pandemic. So I think like following those countries that might experience a second wave earlier um, will be um, kind of important for us to look at and interesting for us to look at as well as we try and determine when we can return to some activity. Yeah, there's the one problem with that is that there have been some outbreaks in second wave type of activity in Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, hmm. Wuhan. And, but these are so small because the countries so quickly react to them. Whereas with us, I feel like we wouldn't be that quick to react. So we wouldn't, we would look at them, we'd be like, oh, they had a hundred new cases. A hundred new cases is nothing. But to them, because they've been so small in terms of amount of cases, a hundred cases is a lot. So really what they're seeing as a second wave seems like nothing to us. And huh. I'm kind of worried we won't react in the right way because of that. Right. Hmm. Well, I, you know, one thing like, they're obviously, I think colleges are going to have to put like in, an insane amount of restrictions on like what, what people can do. And I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this, but like, you know, I don't think say if schools could go back, like there definitely couldn't be anything like parties or any large gatherings. You know, I, I feel like it's going to be really hard for people to, um, if they're on campus, like follow these restrictions, you know, and for colleges to really like manage every student and what they're doing and like stop large gatherings from happening. I, I mean, I don't know if you have any different opinions on that or. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I was looking at Notre Dame's policy for next year and they're talking about all students socially distancing from each other. And I'm really thinking like either they're really going to enforce this and it's not really going to be any different from online school, except for the fact that you're living somewhere else and paying more tuition 
or people aren't, they're not gonna enforce it and there will likely be outbreaks and it won't really work. So, so I'm just curious as to, mm-hmm. you know, is it gonna be worth it for, to be on campus, even if you're not really interacting with other students as much and not really going to class the same capacity. Right. And to that point, like with college students and teens in general, I think like if they're not really going to enforce it, and obviously it would be very difficult at a large college to enforce it, to enforce social distancing norms. Um, I know a lot of people, like older people have been frustrated with how little um, generally teens have been social distancing. Like I feel like a lot of young people like our age haven't really been taking it as seriously, especially as like in Minnesota um, with Governor Walz's recent kind of like press conference or announcement. Um, so I think I, I agree with you. Like, I, I, I think it would be tough for a college to be on campus and try and enforce some kind of distancing thing, given the fact that it's call, kids are call it, we're like they're kids and they generally haven't been taking it that seriously from what I've seen kind of. Well, I, I, I also think though, like at the same time, it's going to be very hard for them to manage kids in person. But like, you know, I think everyone would rather, you know, it might not even be that different from online school, just besides, like you said, being there in person. But I think they're going to kind of take that chance because so many people don't want to do online school, like the online school. Um, You know, I don't know, like what percentage of people would say they'd take a gap year. But I feel like a good portion of people would just be like, well, I'm not going to pay full price for this tuition if it's online and it's, you know, not the same education as I would get. And I guess in that sense, then they probably are going to do like, they'd probably rather go the route of just having people be there at the very least. And then putting an insane amount of restrictions on what they can do. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, I'm with you, but then I'm also with Zach. Cause like, I don't know how effect, like now that I'm really thinking about it, like are are these like campuses really going to be able to, are these colleges really going to be able to like restrict the social scene on campus? Like, are they going to be like have mandatory times where people have to be in their rooms or like, you know, like there's so many unanswered questions about, I mean, obviously I think having school in the fall would be great. Right. But you know, a lot of these issues about the technical or like the practicality of like, how it's going to work needs to be addressed over the next coming months. And who knows if there's like a mass, if like cases keep rising, like you said, Zach, in places that have East restrictions and, you know, there's a spike like mid July to late July, like there's a, there's a good chance. Like if there's a spike in Boston, like mid to like late July that we probably don't go back August 31. So again, everything's just dependent on how we act as a community over the summer and whether or not, you know, cases are able to you know not peak over the summer mm-hmm. yeah it's definitely up in the air i think even if colleges are saying yeah we're definitely going back if something some major development happens they can't or if a school says we're definitely not going back you don't know what's necessarily going to happen in the next couple months but i think another reason why schools will need to open some schools at least is because they're financially dependent on students both paying tuition and being there Uh, for example I know Penn is the number one employer in all of Philadelphia and their economy would take a huge hit if school was online and some of the smaller schools would 
if they didn't have the tuition money, they would maybe not even be able to have the school exist anymore. I saw something that said a decent percentage of schools of smaller liberal arts schools would potentially have to go out of business if there was another year of online school. Mm. So there's really a financial need with some of these schools to figure out no matter what the cost to have this massive amount of testing that they're going to need to. Which again, yeah, which again, like goes back to this idea that we need like a permanent solution or not a permanent solution, but like a fix being in the form of a vaccine as soon as possible, which is why like the whole world right now is just trying to figure out this, um, this problem. Zach, what have you heard thus far on a vaccine and a relative timetable for when we could expect to see, you know, a functional vaccine um, be widely available? In terms of vaccines, there was actually a recent development from one of the U.S. vaccine uh, producers, which is Moderna, Moderna, uh, I think Moderna Health. And so their vaccine is in its early trials. And they saw that it gave people the same antibodies that previously being infected gives people. And we know that it's very likely that at least for some period of time, getting infected and having those antibodies will give you some sort of immunity. So this is actually very promising, but they haven't even gone into their large scale human trials yet. So it's not really something where you could say, okay, we'll definitely have a vaccine from Moderna by January because this has happened with previous uh, vaccines in different types of illnesses where it'll look really promising at first and then it dies out because just the percentage of vaccines that go all the way through is so small. Um, but that one, they believe they can have by January if everything works out. So that's pretty promising. And then there's also a few different drugs in terms of treatment that have shown some promise where if we can lower the death rate enough and the hospitalization rate and potentially the amount of time that someone's infectious or infected, we can resume most activities. And these are drugs like remdesivir, which you guys might've heard of, um, hmm. which uh, remdesivir was approved a couple of weeks ago for emergency use and the effectiveness really, we haven't heard too much about it, but it seems to be somewhat effective. Um, but what people really aren't talking about enough is kind of the short-term vaccine, as I like to see it, which is large-scale wearing of masks. There's been studies that show 75 to 80% of the population wearing masks reduces the infections to an amount where if we do that for long enough, it'll just, it won't be able to spread anymore, even if we resume other activities. But oh. there's really just this narrative by people where they don't want to wear masks and they just want to seem, I guess, tough, where they don't, they don't need to wear a mask. Or just flex their freedom too. But I, I've seen like videos online of people, you know, just not wearing masks, you know, just to like protect their freedom, I guess. But I, I agree with you, Zach. I think um, the more, you know, small businesses and, you know, even states, like I wonder if like the states can get uh, start enforcing this as well, like out in public wearing, you know, wearing masks, like you said, that could be a short-term vaccine. Yeah, New Mexico is one of the, a couple states that's required mask wearing when people are out. And 
I guess it's kind of disappointing that Minnesota didn't require it, that Wall didn't require masks, even though he recommended them, just because people don't realize they can they could do a lot more. We could open up a lot more if everybody was wearing masks. We could, and there'd be much less risk. Hmm. Yeah, I I feel like people. The thing that no, it seems like no one is getting and that's something we could do is like we could everyone just kind of needs to like learn to live with it in a way like and, you know be accustomed to it and like preventing it because you know people say like oh well the stay at home home order is gone so like well now everything is fine like the virus is gone we can reopen we can go back out in public but like you know there's there might not be a vaccine for like another year or whatever and i just think if people would understand that like you know, doing things like wearing masks, that'll lead to reopening faster and like reducing risk of being reopened before there's a vaccine. So I, I like, I think if everyone was kind of on the same page, like we would, we would know how to live with it, live without a vaccine and like still be safe at the same time. You know, there's also kind of an idea that of some people that are like, okay, we've been socially distancing for so long now i can start going out and just acting normal but it's like if you weren't doing this a month ago the only thing that's changed from now from then is that cases have gone up like we're people don't realize minnesota like i don't even think we've reached our peak yet like we're i think a month away from our peak and mm -hmm. people are starting to really relax at all their distancing and it's just making that peak go higher and higher yeah, yeah. right People are like, I've seen people online saying like, well, the first, well, the worst of it's already come, it's going down. And that's, well, yeah, that's because literally everyone is staying home. Like it, it's, it's like for some reason, they just don't understand that. Yeah. Which is just kind of frustrating. Because then it's like, well, it, it's clearly not gone. There's not even really, I mean, there's like no treatment. Correct me if I'm wrong, but like, this, I mean, right. to me, that's just the most frustrating part. Yeah. Like right. How do you expect to get back to your daily lives if you just you act like it's not there at all. Uh huh. And I know, obviously, we talked about like college sports and professional sports where there's like a lot of cross country travel involved. But I obviously like with high school sports and stuff, especially here in Minnesota, like because there's less travel involved, everything's just condensed into smaller areas. Like high school sports, sports like in the fall could be potentially possible but Mike like you're saying if it's frustrating when people don't take things seriously and it's gonna it's gonna cost a lot of people their seasons down the road or their kind of extracurricular activities down the road so I know like high school coaches in Minnesota specifically for soccer have been having these conversations with players and stuff so obviously we're gonna be we're gonna just have to continue to watch that as we go forth here mm -hmm yeah um i think we touched on everything we kind of wanted to keep this episode a little bit shorter um just to you know zach will be back on tomorrow for a completely different topic a little more lighthearted. Um, yeah so we'll be trying out something new tomorrow um we'll also have another uh redheaded guest join us tomorrow um it'll be a lot of fun we'll discuss movies and um, then we'll take Friday off and then we'll finish uh, our 
I'd like to call it the first season of What's Buzzing. You know, it's the two-week sprint that we did for our senior program, and then we we won't go away for for good. We'll just uh, we'll take a little bit of a break and you know be around when we can. So um, thank you guys for watching. Follow us on social media at uh, What Is The Buzz. Um, at W Buzzin and then Instagram or sorry, YouTube and Spotify at what's buzzing. Um, Zach, thank you for coming on. Um, it was really good to hear your, uh, your thoughts and, um, keep doing your thing at, uh, in the bubble. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me and good work on the podcast. Um, so yeah. So until next time, keep buzzing.